Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guests. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. Well, I appreciate the gentleman reading from Matthew chapter 22, and I don't want to leave out Mark or Luke or John. And so today, in the next few minutes we have together, we're going to look, beginning, first of all, in John chapter 13. Then we're going to transition to Mark chapter 12, and then we'll finish up in Luke chapter 10. And uh, all of this will be on the screen, but uh, I don't know if you're like me, but I like turning to those pages as well and uh, looking at it through my own copy of God's Word. Um, as we get started this morning, I want to think about the statement, and maybe you've heard it before, maybe you've said it before, that's going to leave a mark. Maybe yesterday, even some this morning, you know, kind of rainy and, and, and wet outside, and maybe your kids or your grandkids or maybe your spouse, after you had just cleaned the carpets or cleaned the house up, they had been outside and they got their, 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 their shoes all over your nice, clean carpet. And you think to yourself, that's going to leave a mark. Or maybe we're in the middle of a baseball season now, or maybe you've watched the, the high school baseball game, or maybe you've watched some on, on television and you see that individual, you see that batter take a foul ball right to the cheek. And you think to yourself, that's going to leave a mark. Or, or maybe you're at Walmart. Maybe you're at the grocery store and it's a real windy day outside. And those shopping carts are just flying all over the place and you can't control it. And the next thing you know, one hits your car right on the side there. And you're thinking to yourself, that's going to leave a mark. And all these things, when we see them and we observe them, we think in our minds, that's going to leave a mark. The question that I want us to think about this morning is, what about our mark as Christians? What kind of mark are we leaving? And is the world going to notice our mark? And there are a lot of people in the religious world today, as soon as we see them by what they're wearing, by what their appearance is, we automatically know them. We've already identified them. Let me give you a few examples. When you see a woman of the Islamic faith wearing a hijab or wearing a veil, you automatically identify that individual, that lady, as a Muslim. Or maybe you see their counterpart. Maybe you see a man wearing a turban and you automatically identify his faith, his religion, what he believes. Or maybe you see someone wearing a yarmulke and you think about somebody practicing Judaism and the sign of reverence that they have. Or maybe you see on a television show or some type of program uh, an individual, a lady wearing a habit, and you automatically identify them as a nun. Or maybe their counterpart, the priest, wearing a clerical collar. If you were to see somebody wearing that clerical collar, you automatically identify him as a priest. Or we may not know the name of the pope, or we may not know anything about the pope, but when we see someone dressed in that type of apparel, we automatically identify and think of him as the Pope. Or maybe this family, for example. 
When you see a family dress very simplistically and modestly in those type of clothing, most of the time we think of them in terms of the Amish. And then one particular thing that I wasn't aware of until here recently, the Church of Latter-day Saints. They have some inner garments that they wear over their normal clothes as a sign of purity uh, to their faith and to their religion. And so with all these examples, when we see people wearing certain things or doing certain things, we automatically identify them as what they believe and what they stand for when it comes to their religion. Question. What about us? As followers, as disciples, as children of God, how is the world going to know that we are followers of Christ? That comes to our first passage of Scripture now. John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, Jesus is about to wash the feet of His disciples. And very soon he's about to go to the cross. He's about to die for the sins of all humanity. But between these two very significant events, as Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and as Jesus goes to the cross and dies for the sins of all the world, Jesus makes this statement in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, all will know you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Jesus says, you want the world to know that you are a true follower and disciple of mine, that you are a child of mine. It's through your love. And sometimes we say, oh, oh yeah, I'll love people that love me. I'll be kind to people that are kind to me. I'll be hospitable to people that are hospitable to me and I'll be generous to those who are generous to me and I'll be merciful and forgiving to those who are merciful and forgiving to me. But Jesus says, no. You're to love those who may not love you and you're to be merciful to those that may not be merciful to you and you're to be kind and hospitable and generous to those that may not be kind and hospitable and generous to you. And so we go back to that verse again, verse 34. Jesus says, a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And maybe you're like me when you first read that particular verse there, John chapter 13, verse 34. You think, what's the newness about this commandment? I mean, already, Jesus, you've told us the importance about loving each other. And you can go and look in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament writers under the old law talk about the importance of loving one another. What's the newness of this command? And Jesus says, again, a command, a new command that I give to you that you love one another. And here's the newness of the command. As I have loved you, you go out and love one another. Jesus says, I want you to raise the standard. I want you to raise the bar. I don't want you to just love others because they love you or to be kind to others because they're kind to you. I want you to love others as I have loved you. And that command's never been given before. And so as we practice this command, this command of loving others as Jesus Christ has loved us, and you think about it through as Jesus washes his disciples' feet, showing humility and showing servanthood, and as Jesus goes to the cross and dies for the world, the great sacrifice, in between these two very significant events, Jesus says, that's how the world is going to know that you're a follower, that you're a disciple of mine, through the love that you have one for another. Francis Schaeffer, years ago, as he wrote a book on the mark of Christianity, 
he makes this statement. He says, love and the unity to attest to is the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. And so from John chapter 13, I want you to remember the statement. Jesus says, as I have loved you, you go out and love one another. Let's transition now to Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is going to get a little bit more specific into this thought of how you love one another and this whole concept of loving one another. In Mark chapter 12, we're going to begin in verse 29 and 30. Jesus answers a question about what is the greatest command. A scribe has has come to Jesus. There's a series of, of questionings here in Mark chapter 12. And with this question, Jesus answers it by saying these words in verse 29 and 30. The first of all the commands is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. This is the first command. And again, if you look at it from the complete context of Mark chapter 12, he's gone through a series of of questioning here. He's been interrogated by the Pharisees and the Herodians in verse 13, the Sadducees in verse 18, and now it's the scribes here in verse 28 that are asking Jesus out of all the commands, out of all these commands in the old law, under the old covenant, which is the most important? Which is the one that we're supposed to follow first and foremost? And so Jesus quotes from a very familiar passage of scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he answers the question, you're to love God and love him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And then Jesus does something in verse 31 that he's not asked to do. The scribe just asked Jesus, what's the greatest command? And Jesus says, it's to love God. And then then Jesus goes on and he says, let me tell you what the second greatest command is as well. In verse 31, Jesus says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. And you think about that phrase. Not just love your neighbor, but love your neighbor as yourself. You know, that, that's not just mentioned once in Scripture, or twice in Scripture, or three, four, or five, or six, seven, eight, or nine times in Scripture. But here's the list of them. Ten different times... Two in the Old Testament, eight in the New Testament. Do we see this phrase, we see this command about the importance of loving one another as we do ourselves? Now to me, if, if Jesus or God or God's word tells us to do something one time, that's important. But ten different times and ten different settings and occasions, we're told the importance of loving our neighbors as we do ourselves. This must be a big one. Must be definitely one we want to put into practice. And I don't know about here in, in Winston County, but back in Colbert County, we deal with this problem all the time. I mean, every day, sometimes just to get to work or to get to certain places out in the community, we'll have to sit there and watch a train go by. And sometimes we'll watch a train go by, then we'll watch the other train go by the other direction. And then many times here recently, as been in the paper, those trains just sit there. Not for a few minutes. Sometimes for hours and sometimes literally the entire day, it will sit there on those tracks. We can't get across to the other side. But what I've noticed about most trains here in this area, at least, it's always got two engines, two engines pulling all those cars alongside. 
And this is kind of what I vision when I, I think about all the commands. Jesus says, hey, let me tell you what the two greatest commands are. Let me tell you what the engines are that pull all the other train cars along. Loving God and loving each other. And you put those two engines, you put those two great commands together and all the other commands are going to follow. You think about all the commands that we have in the pages of God's Word. If we love God and love others, we don't have to worry about the other commands. All those are going to follow into practice. All those we will have no problem as long as we see the importance and value of loving God and loving each other. And the first time that thought of loving one another as yourself is mentioned is in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Where the Bible says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. So from John chapter 13, Jesus says, as I have loved you, you go and love one another. From Mark chapter 12, Jesus says, let me tell you how important this command is. I deem it as the second greatest command out of all the commands that are out there. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Now let's look at one final passage for most of our time this morning as we put this into application. And we come to Luke chapter 10. A very familiar story in Luke chapter 10. And in the context, it starts off in verse 25. And the passage in Luke 10 verse 25 says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus. Now when we think of the term lawyer, a lot of times we think about the term maybe in our 21st century language today, but the term lawyer to them meant just a man of the law. It was a scribe. It was a teacher of the law. Let me prove it to you through scripture. In Luke chapter 5, verse 17, notice what the passage says. Now it happened on a certain day as Jesus was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by. And as you go down and look a, a few verses later in that same context, verse 21 of Luke 5, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying. And so in verse 17, it's referred to as a teacher of the law. In verse 21, the group is referred to as scribes. And so it's a synonymous term as you think about this lawyer, this man of the law, this teacher of the law, this scribe. And what they would many times do, they would take the traditions and take the commands and kind of mesh them together and how they wanted it to form and how they wanted it to look. And so here in Luke chapter 10, this man of the law comes and he asks Jesus this question. And here's the question, verse 25. He says, teacher, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Everlasting life. What can I do to get it? And so Jesus answers in verse 26, and he says, what is written in the law? What is your reading of the law? Jesus asked a question here that we always need to ask. Any question that anybody ever asks us, our response ought to be, what does the Bible say? Not what does Wade say, or what do I think on this matter? Or, what does the government say, or what does this person say? But what does the Bible say? And that's what Jesus does here. Hey, you're a man of the law. You know the law. What does the law say? And so this lawyer answers Jesus, verse 27, and he says, You're to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. Very familiar words to us here. And then in verse 28, Jesus responds. And he says in verse 28, You've answered justly. You've answered rightly. You do this and you'll live. You've answered straight up. That's the correct answer. 
But then the lawyer's got one more thought he wants to throw out at Jesus here, verse 29. And he says, as he's wanting to justify himself, he says, so who's my neighbor? Now think about the term neighbor for a moment. Not so much the term neighbor as we think of neighbor as the next door or or in, in that matter, but really the term neighbor means just someone that's near or nearby you. And so you think about it in this very fragmented society, religious society they had back then. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the Herodians, you had the Essenes. And so this man, this lawyer is asking Jesus, who's my neighbor? Is it this Pharisee? Is it the Sadducee? Is it this Essene? Is this Herodian? Is it this fellow lawman? Who is my neighbor? And with this question, Jesus tells this very familiar teaching and story in Luke chapter 10. And we're going to divide it up very quickly in three scenes. Scene 1, one verse. Luke chapter 10 and verse 30. Now a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothes, who wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now you see here a map to kind of get an idea of the thought process of Jerusalem to Jericho. 17 miles northeast of Jerusalem was where Jericho was, about 10 miles north of the Dead Sea. But you got to think about it in terms of altitude for a moment. In altitude, Jerusalem was about 2,500 feet in elevation. But as you take that 17-mile trip to Jericho, now you're about 700 feet below sea level. And it's not like there's many places between Jerusalem and Jericho, this 17-mile stretch to go. Here's an actual picture of what the road would have looked like and what it looks like today on this 17-mile stretch from Jerusalem to Jericho. Very barren, middle of nowhere, hills, caves. And so if you're on this road and you're all by yourself, no cell phone reception, no nothing, you're in the middle of nowhere. If anything happens, you're in trouble. And so this individual is traveling traveling down this road is very helpless and defenseless, hoping that nothing will happen. And that's the imagery that Jesus is wanting to get to his audience as he's talking about this. In fact, this 17-mile stretch from Jerusalem to Jericho by many writers is referred to as the Red and bloody way. Because so many people lost their life, lost their possessions, lost their clothes as they traveled this road. Many thieves would hide in caves and would pounce by on travelers as they went and journeyed down this road. And so that's the scene that we get here from this one verse in the first scene. Scene number two, we read two verses. Luke chapter 10, now verse 31 and 32. Now by chance a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, he came and he looked, and he passed by on the other side. Think about these two individuals for a moment. you got the priest, one that leads the worship there in the temple. you got the priest that would make the offerings, that would make the sacrifices for the people. He sees the problem, he sees the need, but yet he passes by on the other side. And a lot of times in our minds, we're thinking, Why? Why would he do that? Maybe it's apathy. Maybe he didn't care. Maybe he was afraid. Maybe he didn't want to become a victim himself on the side of the road. We have no idea why, but he makes the choice and he passes by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, someone from the tribe of Levi would have been involved in the worship of the temple, probably just came from the worship there in Jerusalem. He sees the problem and he sees the need and he passes by on the other side as well. Now, here is an up-close 
pathway from Jerusalem to Jericho. A lot of times when I read this statement and they pass by on the other side, I, I kind of vision, or I used to envision at least, you had the priest and the Levite and they were way over here. And you got the guy that's been beaten and robbed and left for dead and has no money and has no clothes. He's way over here. But if you think about it in their terminology and what the road was like, it was no eight lanes over here and eight lanes over here. The priest and Levite actually had to step over the man. It was that small. It was that narrow of a road. They didn't just see the guy because he was way over there. They saw the guy. They saw the need and literally stepped over the need and the problem. Scene two, two verses. Scene three, three verses. Luke chapter 10, 33 through 35. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii. And gave him to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. When you think about the text here, the very first word that they would have heard in the original Greek language was the word Samaritan. And that was an eye-opening word to them. They didn't like that word Samaritan. This guy's been robbed, he's been beaten, he's been left for dead, he's been stripped of his clothes, and the priest didn't help, the Levite didn't help, the facilitator, the mediator, the ones that were the religious ones that were trying to get the people closer to God in their relationship with God, they stepped over the problem. But the Samaritan, he helped. And so as Jesus concludes this teaching here, in verse 36, he says, And which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? Notice what the lawyer didn't say. The lawyer didn't say here in verse 37, Samaritan. He didn't even use the term Samaritan. But he said, ah, just that guy, that guy that, that, that helped the man that had fallen among thieves. And Jesus' response in verse 37 at the end, Then go and do likewise. I don't know where you find yourself in this parable. Maybe you find yourself as the guy that's been bought, robbed and, and beaten and, and left for dead on the side of the road, and you're crying out for mercy and help. Maybe, honestly, looking at your heart and your life, you see yourself as the priest and the Levite. Guilty that you should have done something, knowing that you should have helped, but yet you saw the problem, you saw the need, and yet you passed by. You stepped over it. Or maybe you see yourself in your, your, your good day, your best day, in wanting to help and wanting to encourage and wanting to, to do whatever that needs to be done. And you helped, just like the Good Samaritan. But I think sometimes we miss the significance of this teaching of Jesus. We look at it through the example of compassion and mercy. But yet think of the complete picture, the complete context of Luke chapter 10 and what Jesus is trying to teach here. Notice these three verses in the book of Luke we've already talked about. Luke 10, the beginning, the question. The lawyer says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, you do this and you'll live. And as the end, as he tells him this parable of the Samaritan and what the Samaritan does to help, he says, you go and you do likewise. This parable has nothing to do with who's my neighbor. This parable has everything to do with about 
going and being a neighbor, going and doing something. And again, as you think about it in the context of what did all this happen to begin with? Why did Jesus tell this parable to begin with? Well, it goes back to verse 25. The guy asked the question, the lawyer, the scribe asked the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? A very similar statement we see throughout the pages of the New Testament. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, the jailer at Philippi asked Paul and Silas, what shall I do to be saved? And in Acts chapter 16 and verse 31, Paul and Silas say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household will be saved. And that same night, the Bible says, they taught them the scriptures. They taught them God's word. That entire family, the jailer's family was baptized that night. And I think sometimes we, we give people a false sense of security about salvation. Sometimes we are asked the question, what do I need to do to be saved? And we say, well, believe in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins and confess faith in the Son of God and confess Him as Lord and Savior of your life and repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And you're added to the Lord's church. You can sing the song, redeem how I love to proclaim it. You can sing the song, my name is in the book of life. And yet we don't lift a finger and we don't tell them about how to be a neighbor and how to go out and do. Jesus says, you do this and you'll live. You go and you be a neighbor. You go and you love one another as I have loved you. How do we do that? How do we go out and show and demonstrate that love? Very quickly, let me give you a few things to think about as we close this morning. First of all, to love my neighbor as myself, I got to see the need. I got to see the need, which means we got to open our eyes. We can't just step over the problem. We can't just ignore the problem or pass by the problem. We've got to open our eyes and see the need. Sensitivity begins with the eyes. And you look at verse 33. The the thought here is when he saw him, the first thing that he does, the Samaritan sees the guy that's been robbed and and wounded and beaten and left for dead. I I don't know y'all. But yeah... I do know in this room, this size of this many people today, there are people that are hurting and there are people that are wounded. It might be physically. It might be spiritually. It might be relationally. It might be emotionally. It might be by a parent. It might be by by, by a betrayer. It might be by grief. And so when we see somebody that's wounded, what do we do? Ah, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to help. You know, one thing that kills kindness is busyness. We get so busy with our routines and our schedule, and i got to be at this place and at this time, and and, and I have to do it. And we see somebody that just needs our help. We say, I'm sorry, my schedule's too full, and we just keep on going. Maybe that was what the priest and the Levites said. Hey, we got so much to do. We we, we can't stop and and help you. we got to keep moving. May we be like that Samaritan that says, I see a need and whatever my schedule is, I want to rearrange it because there's a need and this person needs help. You you know, if you want to see the world, you don't see the world by plane. 25,000 feet in the air going 350 miles an hour. You you can't see much of the world. If you want to see the world, you go by car. If you want to see the world, go by bike. If you really want to see the world, Then walk. Because the slower you go, the more you can see. And the faster you go, the less you see. 
And sometimes in our hectic, busy schedules, we get going so fast, we see the need, but we say, no, I've got time, and we just keep moving on. And sometimes if we just slow down, there's needs all around us that can be met if we open our eyes. Number two, to love our neighbor as ourself, we got to sympathize with their pain. Sensitivity starts with the eyes, but sympathy starts with the emotions. It starts with the heart. You go and you look at the, the middle there, verse 3. When he saw him, what, ha- what happened? He had compassion. When he opened his eyes, when he saw the need, he felt compassion towards this man. I, I'm not a counselor, but over the years in, in my profession, I've counseled many a people in, in, in many a situation. And I've learned the trick in counseling is to keep my mouth closed and to let them talk and just listen. Because so many times in so many counseling situations, I'll say hardly any words whatsoever and they'll do 90 to 95% of the talking, but that's what they wanted. They wanted somebody that would listen to them. They wanted somebody next to them that would pray for them, that would cry with them, that would help them, but ultimately that would listen to them. And if we're going to be sympathetic, if we see the need, and we're going to respond to that need, we've got to listen more and talk less. Number three, to love my neighbor as myself, we've got to seize the moment. We've got to seize that moment of opportunity to help. Not delay, not put it off, not say, hey, I'm busy right now, but I'll come back and help you later. I'll come back and help you tomorrow. Don't procrastinate, but be spontaneous. Seize the moment. There in verse 34, he sees the man, he has compassion on the man, and then what does he do? Verse 34, he puts it into action and he went to him. He spontaneously said, hey, I'm going to cancel the rest of my schedule or what's going on. I see a problem and I'm going to help with this situation. He begins to take initiative. And there may be neighbors, there may be friends, there may be co-workers, there may be family members. You see a problem, you see a need. And you think, well, I, I can't help. You know, I can't help what you're going through emotionally. Or I can't help what you're going through physically. Or I, can't, I can't help what you're going through spiritually. But you know what you can do? You can hold their hand. You can put your arms around them. You can pray for them. What are we willing to do? Because the Samaritan in this situation, he used the resources that he had and he made a big difference. He takes him and he bandages his wounds. He pours oil and wine on him. He, he sets him on his own animal. He takes him to the local inn. He takes care of him. He says, hey, I'm not a professional. I'm not an EMT. I'm not a licensed counselor. But what I can do, I will do. And may that be our attitude as children of God as we want to go out and truly love Christ and love one another. Hey, this is what I can do and I'm willing to help. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. Solomon says, Whenever you're able, do good to people who need help. And when you, and if you have what your neighbor asks for, don't say, come back later. I'll give it to you tomorrow. Do it now. And then fourth and finally, open our eyes, respond, be spontaneous with how we help. And then number four, show kindness. Be a living sacrifice. Love and kindness cost Jesus. It, it cost him his life for us. And sacrifice may require our time, our attention, our resources, our talents, our money, our schedule being messed up to a certain degree. 
But as you think about what true, genuine love is, Jesus tells it here in this parable. It's sensitivity. It's being sympathetic. It's being spontaneous. It's being willing to sacrifice. Back in 1963, there was a woman, Madeline Murray O'Hara. She was the organist, uh, started the organization, the Atheist of America. Back in 1995, her and her son, they came up missing. So everybody started thinking, hey, well, maybe some kind of shady deals happened. Or maybe, what, what, what's going on here? All the money of the organization has turned up missing. And later on, they found out it was one of her former employees that had killed Madeline Murray O'Hara and her, and her son there at Madeline Murray O'Hara's home. And as the police officers and the investigation team went through Madeline Murray's personal belongings, they found multiple diaries that she had written during her, her, her time over her years. And one phrase in her diary that appeared over and over and over again was these words. Somebody, somewhere, help me. Maybe today that's what's crying out in your life, in your heart, in your soul. Somebody, somewhere, help me. And today as a child of God, if if you're crying that out in your life, I know these elders would be glad to pray for you and glad to help you in whatever way they can. Maybe today that you've never put Jesus Christ on in baptism and you're ready You're ready to surrender to your Lord and Savior and make Him the master of your life. We'd be honored and glad to witness that and be a part of that and to celebrate with you today in that choice and that decision. But today, as you look at your heart, two questions. Are you a neighbor? And is there somebody around you that you need to be a neighbor to? Is there somebody around you that's crying out those words, somebody somewhere love me the great thing about a family of god no matter where you go we're all in this together but we love each other we want what's best for each other we're united under one cause under one purpose and today as a family here at ninth avenue if there's something amiss in your life there's something that we as a family here can help you with then let us do it while we stand and while we sing